Hi, welcome to Sam Lives Here, a podcast for parents who have lost a son or daughter to addiction. I'm Angie, and I recently lost my 23-year-old son, Sam. Too many parents like us are suffering alone. It's time to get real about losing our kids this way and to share our stories openly and without shame. I'm here to talk about the experience, trauma, and guilt we are left with when our kids die this way, but most importantly, to find insight and healing along the way. We can't bring our kids back, but I believe that we can and should become stronger now because it's the only choice we have. The day I turned Sam in for robbing a bank was one of the hardest days of my life. And the day that he found out that it was me who turned him in changed our relationship forever. And unfortunately, before he died, it never quite got back to normal. So today we're going to talk about that because a lot of us have unfinished relationship issues. When we look back at them, we also have a tendency to oversimplify these unfinished relationship issues. And I'm going to talk about why we have a tendency to do that and why we shouldn't. And then I'm going to talk about something that I have discovered in my own progress. If I use a theory called habit stacking, it can help me reconnect with myself and move me forward in ways that I didn't expect. So I'm going to share that with you. And then we're going to stop with three steps to uh, feel better right away today, immediately, as well as the weekly limerick. So thank you so much for joining episode number five of Sam Was Here. And before I start, I want to remind you, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a licensed professional. I'm a grieving mom here to talk about my son's addiction, his life, his death, the aftermath, and my attempts to heal and move forward in my life. I hope that my story can resonate with you and also inspire us all to find joy again. So let's get started here. As far as relationship issues, what happened with us was that Sam had robbed a bank and he ended up confiding in me. And I think he confided in one or two other people. And it was one of the hardest confessions I had ever heard because instantly I knew, of course, that I had to act upon it. And I didn't act immediately because I sat on it for a few days. I was so devastated. And I I knew I had to turn him in, but I was so afraid to at the same time. And, you know, I just, I love him so much. I wanted him to recover and I wanted it to be a one-time thing. But I was looking at his life, I was looking at his decisions, and I also did a little bit of research on robberies. And what happens in robberies is that it's usually not a one-time deal. If somebody does it and they get away with it, then they get a little bolder and they tend to go on and the stakes tend to get higher. And in my mind, higher stakes could mean Sam dying in a robbery, Sam killing somebody else, Sam ended up ending up in prison for the rest of his life. And there were so many different scenarios, and I knew in my heart, morally, I had to turn him in because I couldn't take that chance. I couldn't live with myself if something worse happened. And also, it felt really, I was positive he was on his way out. I was positive that if I didn't turn him in, he would die. And of course, I don't know that. I say I was positive, but of course, I really wasn't. We all want to believe that our own kid is the exception. And I truly believe that in a lot of ways, Sam was the exception. If he would have gotten sober, he would have been an amazing counselor, an amazing human. But he was on drugs, and his path was very consistent, and it was going downhill the whole time. 
So unfortunately, I I was not able to make any other choice but to turn him in. And I don't regret it, but I do regret the downturn in the relationship. And it wasn't that we still weren't close. We still told each other we loved each other. We still spent some time together. But the problem was the worst, the worst that his drug abuse got, especially with meth, the more impossible the true reconciliation was. I mean, he told me one time, I will never forgive you for doing that. But I knew he would. Of course he would if he was sober. But since he never got sober, he never really did forgive me. And I think a lot of us are left with these unfortunate stories. And what tends to happen is when we're left with these stories is that we oversimplify the experience. And I want to talk a little bit about that because we tend to forget a lot of things when we look back. We tend to almost imagine that we were living in a vacuum and this was the one thing that we had going on in our life. So if that had been true, maybe I had, maybe I would have, I, I don't know, whisked Sam off to a different state. No, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't. That's assuming I'm somebody that I'm not. No, I had to turn him in. I believe in not robbing banks or people or things like that. It's just not in my moral code. It's not something that I do. I cannot live with my own son doing it and not doing anything about it. So, but anyway, back to all of us, we have these relationships. And the problem is, is that you're not going to have, we're not going to be left with a really whole and wholesome, healthy relationship when our addicted loved ones die, because addiction is not, is not something that can Somebody cannot be addicted and have this full, honest, wholehearted relationship. So we regret something that was impossible to happen. It never could have happened. Another thing that we forget is that we had other things going on in our lives. Most of us have jobs. Many of us have other children. We not only had to keep track or be responsible for the other children, but we also had to be a role model. What would I be showing my other children if I know my son robbed a bank, possibly changed a bank teller's life forever from the trauma of thinking he had a gun and not do anything about it? I also, sometimes we assume that we had unlimited resources, time, energy, money, all the things. We didn't have unlimited resources to, to change these relationships. We also make these assumptions, and this is a big one for me, especially in this regard, is that we forget, when we look back, we forget that we are who we are for a reason. And I have to actually believe, I don't know what the hell Sam was even thinking by telling me if he didn't want me to turn him in, because I am that person. He knows I'm that person. He's often been, Mom, don't call the cops about this or that. Like if I saw something going on and I'm not like a Debbie Downer, I got to tell on everything, but always in my life, if I've seen a dangerous situation, a dangerous driver, something bad happening, I just don't turn my back. That's not who I am. So for me to assume that somehow I could have made this relationship better or changed the outcome if I had not done what I was felt like I was morally called to do, that's not reasonable. And so the reason I tell you this is because I'm not alone in this story. And some of your stories aren't as dramatic, but we had a whole host of things going on. We're human beings. We were not living with our addict in a vacuum. We did not have control. And when we look back, we often put ourselves back in the driver's seat. 
And here's what I think it's like. It's like we're putting ourselves in the driver's seat of a car that is careening down a mountain miles ahead of us, not paying any attention to anything that we've told them in the past. Maybe we're trying to tell them through a phone or something. They are not listening to us. They were not listening to us. They did not hear us. We cannot keep coming back. And I say we, cause I'm doing this and I don't think I'm alone. We cannot keep coming back to the closet to put our superhero cape on for a situation that there was no possibility of using it. We cannot pretend that we had those superpowers. It's going to kill us. Right? So that's, that's what I'm thinking is Just as I talked about in a couple episodes ago, how we have to kind of live with a story that we don't know, this is the part of living with what these relationships were at the time and recognizing that there were a lot, there was a lot more going on than we thought. And the biggest issue, which I don't even know if I tapped on, but we weren't dealing with a reasonable person. It's not it's so interesting that we can stand here, that I can stand here and look back and and lament about the relationship and, and feel so much sorrow for it over something that I didn't or didn't do with somebody that wasn't hearing me, that wasn't at the same party. He wasn't on the same plane. So I'm sitting here thinking that I could have reconciled, I could have made better a relationship when I actually really couldn't. And I believe that I'm speaking to most anybody who's listening after losing a son or a daughter or any loved one to addiction. The, the difficulties in the relationships are ones that we also have to live with and we have to stop taking responsibility for. We did the best we could at the time. I have no question that I did the best I could with what I had in me during every step of the way. And I have no question that anybody here listening did their absolute best every step of the way. Monday morning quarterbacking is something that we should all have PhDs in by now, but let's give that shit up. Let's just try. Let's just try to give that shit up. Moving on to the third point, I wanted to talk a little bit about habit stacking and habit stacking was brought up in the book, um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Mel Robbins talks about it also. And the idea of habit stacking is if you want to develop a new habit is to stack it upon something that you already do automatically every single day. So it makes that connection. So why is habit stacking important in times of grief? It's because in my experience, a lot of the things that I used to automatically do, I just don't do anymore. My mind doesn't think that way. And as a result, sometimes I don't feel as good about myself. A really good example is walking the dog. So normally you would one would get up and walk a dog in the morning. And when Sam died, I just sort of didn't do a lot. She still went, I mean, she still has all opportunity to go to the bathroom and everything. So I wasn't abusing her or anything like that, but I just, sometimes I just wasn't getting her out enough. And then at the end of the day, if it wasn't cool enough to walk later, if we didn't get the good walk in, then I would feel bad about myself because walking is really good for us humans too. I would feel bad about myself as a dog owner because how the hell could I have this beautiful dog that I just adore and not put her first 
And then I would know that she didn't have as good of a day because she didn't get as much work in. And also, if I didn't get it done in the morning, there was the stress of the day of when am I going to get it done? So I decided to try this habit stacking. So I decided, okay, I'm going to wake up and walk the dog. Sidebar, the making the bed is always in between there. I always get up and make the bed. So I guess it would be get up, make the bed, walk the dog. Without exception, that means not sitting down to read the news, not checking my phone, nothing like that. And what it did was it started to make me feel like I had a little bit more control. Not control over the things that I have no control over, but things over like decisions. Like I can make a decision to make a change in my life that's going to benefit me and that's going to benefit my dog. And I can make a decision to attach that to something that happens every day so that that can happen every day too. And I found that to be super empowering. I did that for a while and then I left town for a couple of weeks and now I'm back and doing that again. And it seems interesting to me that how many things go out the window when somebody we love so much dies. And what I'm starting to believe is that we have a lot of tools out in the universe that are ours to discover to help us through this process. And the different tools are probably going to be different for everybody else. And so what I really like to do is when I find something that benefits me, I like to put it forward because I know that if it benefits me, it'll probably benefit at least one other person. And, and then the idea alone also gives other people who maybe don't align with habit stacking ideas, well, that doesn't work for me, but maybe something else will. Before I move on to the next part of this podcast, I want to just briefly recap the first three points. Often difficult relationships are a part of addiction. So when our loved ones die from addiction, often relationships go unsettled and we can do ourselves a huge disservice when we look back and oversimplify the experience. We have to remember the limited power that we had, that we really did not have power over this addiction. And the third part was how we can use habit stacking to reconnect us with old habits that we haven't been able to re-engage with after we lost a son or daughter or loved one to addiction. So moving forward, since last week, now that I'm podcasting that on a weekly basis, the last part of the podcast when I talk about the experience that I'm having at this point as a grieving mom won't be as long because it'll just be a week at a week at a time. So one thing I noticed was that even though last week I had taken great steps and moved back into my, my most important passion of hang gliding, I had to take a couple days off because I had a little backslide. And what was a little backslide was that what happens to me is that a circumstance becomes much, much bigger than it should be, or than it actually is because it's on top of the grief that I already have. And I had to recognize that that is part of my life at this point. And even though I'm so excited to be flying again, had to take a couple days off and recognize, okay, this is going to be a couple steps forward, a couple steps back. Another thing was that I had an experience where I needed to scream and yell. I was listening to some of the music that we had put together for Sam's funeral and I really became overwhelmed. And I was, I um, remembered how beautiful it is to have a car and just roll up the windows and scream and yell because nobody actually can hear you. And that's to me a really nice place to kind of hang out. So I still do need to do that. 
I still do have these horrible fallouts where I just will start crying. And the more that they happen and I just let them happen and let them wash through me, I find that I can get back on track again with continuing on what I was already doing. So while my grief still feels unbearable at times, I feel my resilience growing as well and I'm bouncing back from those darkest times quicker than I was. So before I close out today with this week's limerick, I want to remind you every single day, do one thing that brings you joy. If you're brand new to your grief, you're not going to feel joy, but do something that at least used to bring you joy for any short amount of time. Try to make that reconnection with yourself. Secondly, do at least one thing that makes your life better. By this, I mean pay a bill, make a bed, do laundry, do a chore. Nobody gives a shit about chores, but our body knows we wear it like a heavy blanket when we don't get other things done, and it makes our grief worse. So every single day, do one of those things. But most importantly, every single day, connect with at least one person who both understands and supports you in your grief. So that when you are stronger one day, you can turn around and be that person for somebody else. Thank you so very much for stopping in today. I'll see you next Tuesday. Here is this week's Limerick. Once, as a mother, I said, whoever tried harm, I'd knock dead. But it was a drug so sly and so smug that put him forever to bed. Have a peaceful day. See you next week.